The Lord is um, speaking to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai and he's giving instructions for life, if you like. And we'll continue with the reading in chapter 26 where the Lord says, Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove savage beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies, enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favour and make you fruitful and increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to remove it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile towards me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. If in spite of all these things you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile towards me, I myself will be hostile towards you and will afflict you with for your sins seven times over and I'll bring the sword upon you to avenge the breaking of the covenant 
When you withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you and you will be given into, the, into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. If, in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me, then in my anger I will be hostile towards you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries. I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate. And you are in the country of your enemies. And then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. As for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a windblown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword and they will fall even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations and the land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also because of their father's sins they will waste away. Thanks, Carl. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here again. If you're a visitor Visiting here this morning, uh, welcome. It's uh, great to have you. It's great to have uh, Stephen here, wasn't it? Uh, although, as he was talking about his shoulder bag, I couldn't help but think to myself, it looks more like a man bag uh, or a murse than a, uh, than a shoulder bag, but uh, I think that's worse than a loud shirt. But anyway, it's been great to have you here, Stephen. Great to, great to hear about the, uh, the more serious work that you're doing uh, as well. As Ben said, this is our last week looking at Leviticus and uh, we're skipping over a few chapters. Uh, you might wonder why that is. Uh, it's because, uh, like in football, you know, it's hard to play through the fourth quarter uh, and, uh, and so I thought, oh, well, I'll just uh, run through it quickly. Well, that's not really, not, not really the reason, but um, uh, we're skipping over the chapter about the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. That was uh, chapter 25 because, uh, because we kind of covered that when we looked at the Sabbath uh, more broadly. And a lot of the themes in these last uh, three chapters are kind of all drawn together uh, in this big chapter here, chapter 26. Uh, this is kind of, if you like, the farewell chapter uh, of the book of Leviticus. 
Uh, if Leviticus was Shakespeare's King Henry V, this would be the speech before the Battle of Agincourt. Uh, it's like the great speeches that you have in the movies before the final battle, where uh, someone gives up and you know, lays out the ultimatum to the troops, if you like. That's what this chapter here is doing uh, in the book of Leviticus. It puts out there the message of God to his people that he's rescued from Egypt uh, and it puts before them these three big ifs, these three different roads to take and we're going to go through and look at each of those three uh, big ifs. The first uh, big if is in verses 1 to 13. So God says uh, to the people, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands... This is what he was going to do. He would send them rain at the proper time uh, and the ground would yield crops. If they obey God's promise, he'll give them the rain and the, and the land uh, will yield crops. That's a pretty uh, significant promise, isn't it? Uh, if you think about uh, just our own country, Australia is a country which is ravaged by inappropriate rain. Uh, rain that doesn't come, so for years we're kind of uh, languishing under uh, drought and then for the, when it looked like there was going to be a great harvest, then uh, there were floods and the crops were wiped out. Uh, but God is saying to, uh, was saying to Israel that if they followed him, if they obeyed him, then that wouldn't happen. Uh, he would look after them, they would eat all the food that they wanted, the, the, the rain would come at the right time, at the proper season, uh, and they'd be, so, uh, they'd be so rewarded from their crops that uh, there'd still be things left when they uh, got up to next year's harvest as well. So God was going to provide for them food. He was also going to provide safety for them if they obeyed him. Uh, he says, God says that uh, no one would make them afraid and dangerous animals uh, would be removed from the, from the land. Australia is not just a, a, a land of uh, inappropriate rain, it's a land of inappropriate and dangerous animals. Uh, I think we kind of like to relish that. Uh, my parents had a, uh, had a friend who lived uh, in uh, an area south of Sydney in what could only be described as the Goldilocks zone for uh, three different species of uh, funnel-web spiders and they had a pool out the back uh, and almost every day they'd go out the back and there'd be another funnel-web spider sitting in the pool with its pointy teeth waiting to, uh, uh, waiting to, to, to kill them basically. But besides funnel-web spiders, we have snakes, we have box jellyfish, we have uh, white pointers, we have blue-ringed octopus, we have, is it stonefish, is that right? And then uh, something called a snotty as well, I think, I don't know. Uh, and, you know, we live in a dangerous country. We live in a dangerous country, almost ruled by dangerous animals, don't they? they, they these animals almost rule over us sometimes in terms of the fear that they generate. But God promised Israel that it wouldn't be like that for them if only they obeyed him. They would live in a safe land. They would be safe from not only dangerous animals but dangerous enemies as well. Verse 8 says that five will chase away a hundred. A hundred will chase away ten thousand. They were going to have military supremacy even though they had fewer numbers. But the whole climax, I think, of this 
this promise of God to Israel uh, has to be intimacy with God and, and all those other benefits flow out of that. Verse 11 says, I'll put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to live with you. That's what God's saying. I'm going to live with you and you'll know me and I'll look after you. The basic point is that God was saying, if you obey me, you can live with me, you can know me and I'll look after you. But the trouble is that that condition was a condition that Israel was unable to meet. The history of Israel after Leviticus is a catalogue of, of failure. Israel was totally unable to fulfil this, this condition, this big if. If you obey, this is what it will be like. But they couldn't do that. They couldn't obey God. They couldn't follow God. Not just as individuals, but as a community as well. As a whole community, they were moribund and they were corrupt. The history of Israel's deliverance from Egypt by God's hand and their subsequent failure to live up to this big if makes a profound point. The point is, It is not enough to simply take a group of people and release them from their oppression and think that by doing that you'll make a new community of people. You cannot just take people out of of their hardship and put them in a new place and expect them to be different. As great as uh, as the work of a man like William Wilberforce, uh, as great as his work was in eradicating the, uh, the slave trade, uh, from England and, and then eventually uh, the world, as great as that work was, the end of slavery didn't bring about a new humanity. As great as the social justice movement was in South America in the last century, the fight for release and, and, and uh, freedom from domination, uh, as great as that movement was, it didn't create a new humanity. When disenfranchised Christians left England uh, and settled in America in 1620, they didn't create a new humanity. It was the same old people plagued by the same old problems. You might not, uh, you might not know this, but uh, actually one of the, the great ideas behind the better nudist colonies, I never knew this, but I, I found this out a little while ago, is that that behind the better nudist colonies there was actually a a deep philosophical idea. And the idea was that if you could go away and if you could have no barriers between you and other people, if you could get rid of that, uh, you know, not just barriers in terms of... in terms of emotions and stuff, but, but, but wearing no clothes was kind of an idea of this, kind of pushing the limits of this no barriers thing. If you could do that, if you, somehow you could go away and live like that, that it would be okay. That you'd create this new, huma- new humanity. But they fell victim to the same problems as everybody else. In the last century, the United Nations was created in the hope of delivering the world from crime and oppression and hatred and bitterness, but it didn't do it. The United Nations can't do that. It can't create a new humanity. 
It can't create a new humanity without crime or without marriage breakdowns, without family divisions, without oppressive working conditions, without corrupt governments, without miscarriages of justice. It can't do that. That's why you can't look at a passage like this and say, if only people in Australia would, would get their act together and become more moral and love God, if only they would do that, you know, we'd be better off. Now, you see, the point is, the point of this big if and Israel's failure is to say that you cannot just take people and put them in a new place, in a new land, in a great country and think that there'll be new people who love God and honour God and serve God and love each other. The history of Israel was an illustration of that. It was a giant case study, if you like, in what was necessary. What we need uh, most of all is not just to be moved to a new place, Uh, it's not just to have our worldly misery taken away, we need to be made new people who love God Uh, And that's precisely the rescue package which Jesus inaugurated uh, through his death and resurrection. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it, how often you hear the remark from people uh, that before they became a Christian they would often call out to God when times are difficult. So times are tough and they'd, they'd be driven back to God in prayer and then when things got better again they would just forget about God again. They just go back to their life living their own way. And yet then something shifted for them and they are truly converted. What what changed? What changed is, is that instead of crying out to be God just to be rescued from their worldly misery, they realised that the thing that they most need to be delivered from is themselves. And the plague which sin wreaks in their lives and in the lives of everybody else around them. They suddenly realise that the great problem is not misery but sin and sin is just, misery is just the symptom of the disease. They suddenly realise that the only way to deal with that problem, the only way to deal with their sin is in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, That was what the first if in Leviticus 26 was driving towards. It was showing people that that the deliverance so far from Egypt was inadequate in the sense that it left the people unchanged and it drove them towards the hope of the gospel. Uh, To meet that condition uh, required the power of God and the mercy of God. So that's the necessity of the first if, if you like. But then the chapter goes on to outline uh, the cost Uh, in the second if. So uh, the second section begins in verse 14 with these words. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You'll plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. If Israel failed to obey God, they would be robbed of all the blessings which God had promised. There's a reversal here of of everything in that first section. If they obeyed God, they'd get all these things. 
food and blessing and safety, if they didn't obey God, they'd lose all those things. God would be against them. But uh, lest we get the idea that God was capricious and was just waiting for them to trip up one time, this chapter shows how willing and patient God was to give these people chance after chance. Each failure brought uh, oppression, it brought misery in order that the people would turn uh, away from their sin and would listen to God. There was chance after chance. Uh, Look at verse 18. If after all this, so if after all this misery, you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. Then verse 21. If you remain hostile, if you still remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your affliction seven times over as your sins deserve. Verse 23, if in spite of these things you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile toward me, I myself will be hostile toward you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over. God gives them chance after chance. They don't listen, he punishes them. They don't listen, he punishes them. They don't listen, he punishes them again. And then in verse 27, there's the last chance and after that things become very black indeed. God says, if in spite of this you still do not listen to me but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger I will be hostile toward you and I will punish you for your sins seven times over. And then after that, God begins to unpack what that will look like. Their starvation will drive them to eat the flesh of their own children. God would destroy their idols and pile up their dead bodies on top of them. God, instead of being with them and delighting in them, would would abhor them. He would hate them. He would lay waste the land. He would scatter them among the nations. Verse 36 presents a very sobering and graphic picture of the terror that these people would fall under. It says, As for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a wind-blown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword and they will fall even though no one is pursuing them. Uh, You might have had it uh, happen to you uh, where you where you're walking down the street and a car backfires and you, and you jump, you know, because you, you get a fright. I remember once visiting uh, a family and they just bought a new lounge uh, and they gave me a cup of tea as I was sitting on their new lounge and one of their kids popped a balloon and it was so unexpected. I'm not the most secure person at the best of times that I jumped so incredibly and spilt this tea all over their brand new lounge. <laughs> So uh, humiliating and it was the principal of the theological college as well. And Anyway, uh, you know, but... <laughs> and, and, and we can laugh at a situation like that but, but God is saying that these people in Israel would be so terrified that the sound of a leaf being blown across the ground by the wind would make them run away. Such is the plight, says God, of those who continue to reject God. And maybe the most extraordinary thing about Leviticus 26 is not that this is what God says will happen and it's horrible. Perhaps the most extraordinary thing is that this is what God said would happen and it did. 
These are exactly the kinds of things that happened to Israel when Assyria came in in, uh, in 722 BC and wiped out the, northern, the ten northern tribes of Israel. When Assyria came in and destroyed those ten northern tribes, these are the kinds of things that the people went through. When Babylon came a hundred years later and defeated the southern tribes of Judah, these are exactly the kinds of things that the Babylonians did to God's people. And in a sense, the most devastating fulfilment of these words of God came in AD 70 after Jesus had ascended to be with his father, when the Romans put Jerusalem and to the sword and destroyed the temple uh, once and for all. I want to read uh, an account of that. that the, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, wrote an account of, of uh, the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans and uh, a guy by the name of Simon Sebag Montefiore uh, has, has written a book about Jerusalem called Jerusalem an Autobiography and he's condensed uh, an account of that siege. And let me just read it to you and, and note the similarities between what happened and what God said in Leviticus 26. He writes, Around the walls there were gruesome scenes that must have resembled hell on earth. Thousands of bodies putrefied in the sun. The stench was unbearable. Packs of dogs and and jackals feasted on human flesh. In the preceding months, Titus had ordered all prisoners or defectors to be crucified. 500 Jews were crucified each day. The Mount of Olives and the craggy hills around the city were so crowded with crucifixes that there was scarcely room for any more, nor trees to make them. By midsummer, as the blistered and jagged hills sprouted forests of fly-blown crucified cadavers, the city within was tormented by a sense of impending doom, intransigent fanaticism, whimsical sadism and searing hunger. Armed gangs proud for food, children grabbed morsels from their father's hands, mothers stole the tidbits of their own babies. Even the fighters started to run out of food, so, that, so they too probed and dissected the quick and the dead for gold, for crumbs, for mere seeds, stumbling and staggering like mad dogs. They ate cow dung, leather, girdles, shoes, old hay. A rich woman named Mary, having lost all her money and food, became so demented that she killed her own son and roasted him, eating half and keeping the rest for later. I think uh, Montefiore is onto something when he says that these scenes were scenes almost of hell itself. And in reality, that's what they were. That's what the defeat at the hands of Assyria, the defeat at the hands of Babylon, the defeat at the hands of Rome, all those things are but shadows of God's greater judgment, shadows of hell. God said to the people in Leviticus, if you do not listen to me, this is what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened to those who refused to listen to God. And yet here's the sobering truth, here's the sobering reality. If the first if 
was unattainable, if you obey me, if that first if was unattainable, the second was unavoidable. If full obedience is beyond our grasp, if complete dedication and devotion to God is beyond us, then disobedience and hence judgment must be the inevitable consequence. Except that this chapter gives us a third if. We've seen the necessity, we've seen the cost and we've seen that Israel wasn't able to meet the demands for remaining in the presence of God. So what is the remedy? Well, that's what the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about. Look at, uh, at verses uh, 40 to 45. Here's what it says. But if they will confess their sins, And the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to, completely, as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord." In the first if God said if they obeyed he would do what he'd promised. In the second he said if they disobeyed he would take away what he'd promised. And in the third if he says if they humble themselves and confess their sin and pay for their sin then he will do what he has promised. That's it. The remedy is confession and payment for sin. And yet payment for sin sounds like a heavy burden, doesn't it? You know, how were these people to pay for their sin without being totally wiped out? But that's what the entire book of Leviticus has been about up until this point. The book started with all those uh, sacrifices uh, and then way back in chapter 5, you might remember, there was the sin offering. And part of the sin, offering, the sin offering was to be brought when someone had, had committed a particular sin and the person was supposed to come with their animal and they were to confess their sin and offer a sacrifice on their behalf. And then way back in chapter 16, uh, that most pivotal chapter of all, chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, that day which uh, rightly understood would define all of Israel's relationship with God, in the middle of the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats. He'd sacrifice one and he'd sprinkle its blood over the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which, which held the Ten Commandments, those menacing uh, tablets of stone, which encapsulated people's obligations to God. The, the, the priest would sprinkle the blood over that Ark and then he'd take the second goat, and he'd put his hands on the head of the second goat and he'd confess over it all the sins the people had committed and he'd send the goat away into the desert. You see, Leviticus was setting the people up for this demand of God. If you obey, 
if you disobey, if you confess your sins and pay for your sins, how is that going to happen? How is sin going to be paid for? It was paid for through sacrifice. It was paid for on that one day of the year when the high priest would go into the throne room of God and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And as we've seen as we've gone through this book, we've seen that time and again, that was just a shadow, wasn't it? It was a shadow pointing forward to the cross of Jesus. How was sin paid for? How was their sin paid for? How was our sin paid for? It was paid for when Jesus bundled up all our sins on the cross and cast them out into the wilderness, into the desert and as far away as the east is from the west. Here's the multi-billion dollar question then. How do you and I share in that? How do we share in that payment for sin? And the answer that Leviticus gives is very simple really. Humility and repentance. That's it. That's how we share in Jesus' payment for sin. This is how our 2 Chronicles 7 puts it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wickedness, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I was reminded uh, this past week that when Martin Luther nailed his 95 uh, complaints on the door of the church in Wittenberg, the first one was that all of life is repentance. Not penance, not, uh, not making yourself feel guilty, uh, but confessing your sin to God and humbling yourself before him and trusting uh, in the death of Jesus. The point uh, is not, the point Leviticus is, is trying to make is not confession of every sin you've ever committed as though if you leave one out, God won't forgive you. That's not the point. The point is humility before God and willingness to admit that you can't live up to his standards, that you can't obey him completely and that you need Jesus. And those uh, things, humility and confession, are the most central and defining characteristics of, of genuine faith such that if you look at your life and you think to yourself, you know, if you take an honest assessment and you say to yourself, look, I, I'm not fit for the kingdom of heaven. I'm not fit to be part of a church. I'm not, uh, I'm not fit to call myself a Christian. Uh, I'm not fit to know God. But if that despair, despair drives you to say to God, God, save me from that. Save me from myself. I'm not worthy to be called your son or daughter. Save me if that despair drives you to humility and to confession, here is the remarkable truth. Here's the good news. Whatever else you might think or feel, you belong to God and the blood of Jesus covers all your sins. If humility and confession of sin are the marks of your life, trust in Jesus, here is, the, here is the remarkable truth. You belong to God. You're God's child and nothing can take that away from you and all your sins are covered. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, when we uh, look at what your law demands, Lord, when we look at 
what your holiness and your perfectness demands of us. Lord, we know that we fall short. Lord, we know that we're terrible uh, sinners, that we reject you and that we rebel against you. And Father, we want to uh, confess that this morning and acknowledge that again, that our sins and our offences weigh us down. But Father, by your grace, we claim the blood of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Lord, we claim them as our own and we trust that in him we have forgiveness of sin. Father, help us to say with the hymn writer, what mercy is this immense and free that you, my God, have died for me. Lord, help us to trust in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.